I'm Candace Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. And you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And today we are starting strong because we have a guest that you've heard on the show before. It's Slate writer Luke Winky. Hello, Luke. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Happy to be here. I'm so excited you're here. You have been pretty busy since the last time we spoke to you. (laughs) You have written about Trader Joe's employees hooking up with each other. You've written a few times about sex in the city. You lived your life like Mike Pence recently for a week. But I think most importantly, you recently went to the planet of the base. I did go to the plan of the base. It's true. I, I caught up with our guy uh, who will be smashing the Billboard Top 10 very soon in a very, very strange era for the Billboard Top 10. At least that's what that's my prediction. Ooh, yeah. Well, the song we're talking about, the song you just heard, it's called Planet of the Bass. It's by DJ Crazy Times and Miss Biljana Electronica. If you don't know the song... I think that's okay because I feel like it kind of only exists on the internet, but I love this song. I've been very obsessed with it since it first came out on TikTok. And DJ Crazy Times is the person that actually talked to Luke. His name's really Kyle Gordon. And Kyle's kind of like an internet comedian. Is that fair to say, Luke? I would say an internet comedian is very accurate. He's a he's a 30-year-old white guy in Brooklyn. You know, like he's a very standard, our typical, super nice improv sketch guy. Mm, There you go. And so earlier in the summer, Kyle posted a small snippet of this song on TikTok. And it's kind of supposed to be this parody of like 90s Euro pop. To me, it's very reminiscent of like Stereo Love, that Edward Maya song, which was literally in every single Ross in like 2009. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I expected to see one of those old school iTunes commercials set to the song, you know, with like the dancing people to the rainbow background. And the first TikTok itself is supposed to be a funny skit because, you know, DJ Crazy Times is dancing with a pop girly. And importantly, they're in the most important New York geographical location in the world, the Oculus, dressed up in pure <laughs> Y2K fashion. And it's just like, it's like we're going to Ibiza, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And see, here's the thing. The storm kind of started brewing online because DJ Crazy Times, he posted a second TikTok of the song, but he switched out the girl. Like it's a new girl in the video, but it's the same vocal track. So people were like, wow, DJ Crazy Times, he's a misogynist because he's demonstrating <laughs> that like women in pop are replaceable and disposable. But apparently that was all part of the joke. So actually he's in it we're in it we're all still in the planet of the base apparently and honestly i would say if you want to do a real deep read of it and really try to like assign a lot of satire of it uh having a different girl lip-syncing another girl's vocals is a time-honored 1990s pop tradition so in that sense he was right on it and the thing is he continued in this time-honored tradition by switching out another girl doing a third version with sabrina Breyer, who is another new york internet comedian And most recently, he released an actual full song with the full video. Bill Clinton is involved. And Mm -hmm. DJ Crazy Times was asked to perform at another seminal early aughts concert with the Jonas Brothers Mm -hmm. in Boston. Yes. 
There are so many things happening here. But I think the most interesting fact is that you spoke to DJ Crazy Times, Luke. You spoke to the guy behind the song. So tell us about that. What did you glean from that conversation? Yeah, so um, this guy put out this song expecting it to probably, you know, hit his fans, people to enjoy it. He's working on this comedy album. That would be that. And all of a sudden, not only like is the song like a huge meme, but like he's in a position now when I talked to him is right before the song kind of debuted on Spotify and stuff where like, you know, he's kind of embarking on this, like a real second career. And that was the thing I wanted to talk about most is like sort of this strange place we find ourselves in where it's like, is, is Bo Burnham a comedian? Is he a musician? Do I find myself kind of seeking out the songs that Bo Burnham has from like a, a sense that I want to laugh or do I want to listen to it? He put out the song basically expecting to reach, you know, the people that his million followers on TikTok, you know, maybe it'll kind of catch on a little bit, which is, you know, a big umbrella of folks, but you know, it's not like the world's biggest footprint ever. And, um, but after the song kind of blew up all of a sudden, like he's in a position now where like this song could like really chart on Spotify. There's a chance it could like make a dent in the billboard uh, top 20 with how kind of weird the charts are, as we've seen pretty dramatically over the past couple of weeks with these, grievance country song going number one all the time and yeah i kind of want to talk about that about like the the dual careers he's like found himself in where like you, know, you think of a guy like bo burnham who is a musician and a comedian and uh is kind of both at the same time it's not like it's comedy music but people i think people kind of seek out that music just to listen to it at the same time which i think is sort of the, the status that plan of the bass is is kind of hitting you know i i feel like there's a chance people might go see dj crazy times from like a concert perspective more so than a comedy perspective or at least to have those kind of two worlds blended a little bit so that was the thing i i wanted to talk to him about the most and uh he's pretty much like of the mindset that i'm a comedian first and all this music stuff is you know more in the background but i i I guess I, i could see that changing as uh this dude becomes like galactically famous in a way that you know he didn't expect you know uh two weeks ago I mean, speaking of things that we didn't expect two weeks ago, I want to get into what I would say is the most important part of your interview with DJ Crazy Times, which is your detour into discussing the Northern Irish Troubles. Multiple people sent this to me because they're like, Rachel, they talk about the Troubles. And I was like, <laughs> wow, my my brand is so strong. How did you bring in the Troubles to this conversation? Yeah, not to like do too much inside baseball here, but I was given real strict instructions by my editor to talk about playing the bases like little as possible to just kind of make it weird. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so the thing that the thing Kyle's doing, he's putting out a full on comedy album where every song is going to be some sort of genre parody. So playing the bass is his Euro dance, you know, 90s club anthem parody. But then, you know, he's got all this other stuff he's going to be doing from, you know, uh, like 90s kind of alternative country or all uh, children's music, all this stuff. And one of the things he's doing is like uh, an Irish, uh, an Irish fight song, an, uh, an Irish Solidarity Republican uh, anthem, which apparently is a genre of music that was around during the, the height of the Troubles. I did read uh, Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. So I asked, I was like, you know, this is like a Jewish guy from New York. Like there's no, there, there's, there's only one way he found a real strong interest in, uh, in, in, in <laughs> Irish history. And I was like, did, did you read Say Nothing? And he absolutely did. And we, we bonded over that for a little bit and wow. uh, made the really, really, really uh, um, keen observation that uh, 
the Troubles is kind of this unknowable thing that most Americans don't know about, much like uh, the Yugoslavian conflict, which is sort of the implied heritage of of DJ Crazy Time. So uh, as they say, there is uh, there's levels to this shit. This is so funny. I mean, Luke, I'm really glad we talked about this. You've returned like Jeff Bezos from the Planet of the Base. Glad mm-hmm. you made that trip. And I'm glad you're here because when we come back, we're going to talk about another banger piece that you recently wrote. Yep. It is about Matthew Mercer, the most famous name in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. We will get into it with Luke after the break. Hey, y'all. If you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including this one. Yes, this one, too. You will also be supporting the show. ICYMI would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Hit Parade, Working, Big Mood, Little Mood. If we ever do that ICYMI Heartstopper campaign, you might get that on Slate Plus too. Who knows? You will also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall. To get all of that, just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back with Slate writer Luke Winky. So Luke... You recently profiled Matthew Mercer, the game master of Critical Role. It's the most popular live stream Dungeons and Dragons show on the internet. First off, Luke, did you know that you're cited first name, last name on this guy's Wikipedia page? Wow. That's all it takes, man. Just 2,000 words and you're, you're there forever. I would like for you to tell us about your own D&D journey. I got the vibe from your recent piece about living like Mike Pence for a week, which is very mm. funny. Uh, but I get the vibe that you're into tabletop gaming. When did yeah. that start? I, I So I'm more of a board game guy than um, a tabletop RPG guy traditionally. I started getting the tabletop about like a decade ago when I walked into like a random like comic book store and they had all their board games for sale and they all had their, their really interesting looking covers. And I, it, it seemed like a world that I definitely should participate in. That was my entryway, but I, you know, I honestly, I'm only just now getting really into like uh, playing straight up role playing games in a tabletop setting, because it's sort of hard to find you know, four or five dedicated people that want to be there every week to kind of roll dice and, pretend they're an elf but you know you get a little bit older and you know you start you stop posturing quite as much and you know you're in your 30s and all of a sudden uh it's quite easy so right now i'm currently running a uh, tabletop game based in the lord of the rings universe uh my two hobbits one dwarf and elf uh, finished their first their first arc and uh they they dealt with some uh shadows growing in the shire they're currently on their way to rivendell for the next chapter so i'm just like Matthew Mercer, I'm peaking in my tabletop <laughs> fandom right now. <laughs> so were you familiar at all with Matthew Mercer? Because he's also like a well-known, prolific voice actor, right? Like, I think he voiced a main character in Attack on Titan. I'm a pretty big nerd, but not to the level of like knowing voice actors. Like that that's like a level like that that even kind of goes beyond me. But like as someone that like has been to a Comic-Con or two over the last couple of years, like it 
it definitely seemed like this person was becoming like a legit celebrity in that world. Like if he was walking around, you know, a like a comic convention or something like that, he would get stopped for autographs and, and things like that. And I, I wasn't really tuning into Critical Role, but like I was aware that this whole realm of entertainment was kind of starting to like bubble up of like people recording themselves playing Dungeons and Dragons and making that available for public consumption and, you know, you know building a whole brand off of that. And uh, as I got more curious about that over the last couple of years, I saw that Oh, this is the guy. This this is the dude. My YouTube algorithm started popping up with like compilations of like his best like storytelling techniques, like like Matthew Mercer fan cam style content, um, which made me super curious. Uh, but yeah, actually watching it and participating in it, I've not like watched a ton of it as like a fan because you're talking about like four hours of content every week. It's like it's like trying to watch like uh you know all the different real housewives or like professional wrestling. It's like a huge kind of undertaking to like, you know, follow this story. You're, you're, you're doing it like you would with any other, you know, prestige TV show. So uh, it's kind of a testament to him that he's become this famous and this big of a name, despite, you know, just how kind of intense the, the process of, of, of getting into that stuff is. Not just intense, but before the kind of skyrocketing to the level that it is incredibly niche. For sure. So, Mercer launched the web series Critical Role in 2015, and since then, I think it's pretty fair to say that it's become an unvarnished success. The very first episode on YouTube currently has 21 million views. In your profile, you wrote, quote, a 2021 data leak out of Twitch confirmed that Critical Role is one of the richest channels on the platform, generating a mammoth $9.6 million in revenue between 2019 and 2021. Mercer, who you describe as Dungeons and Dragons' first household name, told you that, quote, on paper, Critical Role sounds like something nobody would give a shit about, end quote. And yet, 300 plus episodes and eight years later, here we are. So I think a good place to start would be, how would you describe Critical Role to someone who has never seen it before? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say to people that have no idea of like how like, internet success works is that the one thing you learn the longer you spend in this kind of weird era, era of the internet is anything can become your job in a weird way on the internet now, you know? It's, there, there is a chance that anything you do from ASMR to playing Dungeons and Dragons, that, that can be your job. So Matthew Mercer, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, is a talented voice actor. And the show was founded in 2015 with him and a bunch of his voice actor friends around the industry, basically playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And if you don't know what that is, just think of it as like a in-character conversation you're having with your friends. So one person is kind of creating the world and setting the stakes, you know, you've, you've, you've entered a dark castle and there's some orcs in the corner. What do you want to do? You know, they're the narrator and the other people are uh, playing their characters. You know, they've drummed up some sort of fantasy character and they're engaged in that role. And it turns out as they discovered critical role and Matthew Mercer, if the five people, or in this, their case, they're like the eight people that are playing Dungeons and Dragons, if they're all, really, really talented and are professional performers by nature, all of a sudden, this sort of nerdy kind of after hours hobby can kind of feel like a drama, like something to follow, like something to have fan theories about, you know, and to to speculate on, to make fan art of, you know, it, it becomes much more of a performance 
than a game. It's, it, it can become spectator entertainment if it's done on like a virtuosic level, which is why that show has become really successful because the people that are telling that story uh, are, are, are really good at it. And is that a representation of what you can expect when you play Dungeons Dragons at home? Not necessarily, because you guys aren't professionals, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But um, that is the the secret sauce: is that these people are natural performers. That's what they do. They interact and in a performative capacity with people all the time, and they've taken that skill set. They've adapted it to the improvised sort of storytelling of something like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and. You know, like every episode of Critical Role is at least three hours long, but they've definitely gotten more polished as the years have gone by because, you know, like we watched that first episode today and yeah, there's a lot of tech issues going on. I mean, like the cast, they're just sitting on this couch next to each other. It's very poorly lit. Camera quality is potato, but at the heart of it, it seems like millions of viewers are literally just watching eight people sit around a table talking to each other for up to four hours, and these people love it. And so it sounds like something nobody would give a shit about, and yet they do. So in your opinion, Luke, what are like the other ingredients that kind of make the secret sauce? Yeah, I mean, it, it's fun to watch them just play that game really well and be really great performers. But I, I think another thing that's important is like Dungeons and Dragons and any kind of tabletop role-playing game, a role-playing game, you can really kind of do anything, you know, a game master might say, okay, you, you roll up to this castle. What do you want to do? And the party could decide, actually, we don't want to go in this castle. You want to go to this forest next door. We want to go, uh, go to the pub and talk to someone there. Um, so there's a lot of freedom in how the game is played and that, kind of creates a space for a lot of improv and a lot of thinking on the fly. You do get to kind of watch the story unfold in real time in a way that you can't in like a scripted drama. And Matthew is so good at really putting the work in to kind of build out this world and its characters that he can institute some twists. Maybe a character they introduced three sessions ago shows back up again, or maybe a a villain that they've been trying to fight off forever is, you know, secretly on their side or something. And you get to watch the rest of the people playing the game react to those twists the same way that you are at home because they don't know what's in store. This is all that's the domain of the game master. He's the one that decides what this world is and what happens and, and who's in it. Right. So it has that kind of communal storytelling feel to it. It's dynamic and exciting in a way that when you watch, you know, I don't know season one of uh, severance you know that the people that were in that writer's room and the people on screen who are playing those characters they knew where this story was going the whole time and that 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 is what makes it unique compared to other sort of streaming entertainment i would say something that matthew mercer brought up to you as well is that critical role launched in 2015 which is really around the advent and kind of popularization of live streaming i don't think any of us really could have foreseen how many millionaires would be made on Twitch at that point. And so I guess I'm curious as to how much you think them getting in right at the perfect moment really helped in making Critical Role the name. Yeah. So like, if you really want to go back into the weeds here, so the first season of Critical Role was under the banner of this kind of new media company called Geek and Sundry. And one thing Matthew told me that didn't make the piece is that at the beginning when they were 
building up this company, they just needed content. They needed, you know, people to put on their YouTube channel and their then nascent Twitch channel. And if you need, if you're in need of content, all of a sudden, let's do this experiment. Let me put my four hour weekly Dungeons and Dragons game on your Twitch channel. That's great. That's four hours of content in, in, in the portfolio. It's not like they were the first ones to do that, but they were really early on and definitely one of the, some of the first to kind of live stream it out and treat Twitch as something that can be something more than a place you go to to watch someone, you know, play League of Legends for a couple hours to, to treat it like a programming platform, like you would like a cable channel, which has since become the norm. You know, there have been a lot of critical role imitators and those get like 20 views you know when when they put those up so being first was really important but being first and also really kind of trying to take this stuff seriously and make it professional i think was also really important speaking of this kind of professionalization of dnd you describe something in your piece called the mercer effect which is a phenomenon that's predicated on just how much skill mercer brings to his game mastering right so what exactly is the Mercer effect? Zooming back a little bit, Critical Role has become popular. That's brought a lot of new people into the hobby. Maybe people that have not played Dungeons and Dragons before, they start watching Critical Role and like, man, this is great. I want, I want to do this. And if they jump into a game with, you know, maybe some friends or maybe someone that's been running a game for a little bit, what they're going to quickly understand is the person who is uh, running their Dungeons and Dragons game or whatever other role playing game they're playing is not a professional voice actor and has probably spent maybe an hour thinking about what's going to happen in the campaign rather than have a business that's predicated on spending six days before uh, each uh, four hour show, which I'm, you know, and, and wanting to make it interesting from a, a viewership perspective. Uh so not to bring it back to me, like uh, Matthew Mercer is a professional voice actor. He has an array of accents and affectations he can put it on. He uh, there's compilations on YouTube of his best sound effects. Like he's able to like you know use his mouth to, and then the 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 gates of the castle come up and he can make a sound effect just doing that. Uh, that's not what I can do. That's not what most game masters can do. Um, so I think for people that are getting into the hobby through shows like critical role um there's probably a there, there can be a rude awakening when they realize that product is not something you can really replicate um if you are you know a bunch of guys getting together at a bar uh to roll some dice and explore middle earth you know um so yeah basically the mercer effect is the um kind of the aftershocks of people getting the idea that dungeon dragons is always run by people who perform for a living when that is Almost always not the case. This is interesting because I think what I'm also gleaning from you talking about this, Luke, is maybe there's something about the theater of it. There's like a theatricalness mm. to Critical Role that elevates it to this place of kind of like, what if voice actors did the thing that you and your friends do, but they just did it better with cognizance and awareness and like panning to audience that's yeah. that makes a lot of sense and actually i kind of want to talk and link that to something you wrote which is in your piece you said it's an odd paradox the face of dungeons and dragons does not necessarily deliver a version of dungeons and dragons you can experience at home and that kind of read to us as like maybe the tagline of influencers in general mm. and i kind of wonder if you would consider Matthew Mercer, an influencer, and if not, why? I guess the one difference between Matthew Mercer, because uh, you're right, he has a tremendous amount of influence in this world, you know, like his 
like we we talk about the piece, his stands and stuff like that that he has to you know kind of corral and things like that. The one difference between Matthew Mercer and like the influencer class though is like Matthew Mercer actually like does something. Like there's a product to Matthew Mercer. Like he's really good at Dungeons and Dragons. There's a concreteness to the means in which he's become influential and and really popular. Where I feel like you know. When we talk about influencers, there's something kind of like famous for being famous vibe with the way we kind of think about influencers, right? He's like transcended being just influencer and is and is like like a real celebrity now. He's running Dungeons Dragons games with like Stephen Colbert and and stuff like that. Like he definitely deals with like all the influencer baggage. But like if you ask me to explain why Matthew Mercer is really famous i feel like there's a couple of concrete things i can point to in a way that like, if you ask me to explain why bella hadid is famous i, I would struggle <laughs> a little bit more i'm learning a lot and i'm honestly considering you know starting my own campaign now um mm-hmm. that during you know the northern irish troubles which might be problematic <laughs> but we'll find that out after a short break <laughs> we will be back with luke in just a moment And we're back with Slate staff writer Luke Winkie. I have a question, which is given the success of Critical Role, they now have this animated Amazon Prime television show. It's called The Legend of Vox Machina. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to whether you think Matthew Mercer would still describe Dungeons and Dragons as a niche hobby, and if you would either. I think he would say it's no longer a niche hobby. I feel like those days are kind of over. I mean, the portfolio the critical role itself just has would certainly imply that. I get the sense that there's a lot more curiosity about this world and this hobby than there was before. And I think that really comes down to the visibility of it. Like, again, like that Amazon show, which I'm sure is probably mostly watched by people that have an interest in critical role or are aware of those personalities. I feel like in a world where we're all trying to come up with excuses to hang out with our friends with like an activity or something like that. I feel like the hobby really lends itself to that kind of experience. And also the the cool thing about Critical Role, there are issues with its diversity, let me be clear, but there's a lot of women on that show. I think that has probably helped people realize that A, anyone can participate in this hobby and B, your Dungeons and Dragons uh, stories don't have to be about saving a girl like a chainmail bikini, which is true. You can kind of you can use the setting to tell whatever story you want to tell and take it in any direction you want. And uh, I think that shows been really helpful in getting people to understand that. You just mentioned some of the diversity issues with Critical Role, which is actually something I wanted to bring up. Fantasy historically has been a pretty white genre that's been changing recently, though not without backlash from some fans who would rather see nuclear war than a black elf. But the core cast of Critical Role is still all white. But the core cast of Critical Role is still all white eight years later. But I feel like because of the kind of choose-your-own-adventure style of gameplay that's really integral to D&D, it seems like a space that, as the Critical Role universe expands and generates offshoots, could be more inclusive than most. And I'm wondering if you found that in your reporting, that... Critical Role might not have any people of color, but the kind of imitators they've spawned have been more inclusive. Yeah, no, there's plenty of people of color that are doing shows like Critical Role. And honestly, the tabletop world in general has 
really gotten a lot more diverse in terms of the settings or the people making games or the games you can play. Um, I should have asked Matthew that. I don't know why I didn't. But I guess the one thing I would say about Critical Role itself these are friends, right, that played this game and they all went into business with each other. They all co-own that company together. And I wonder if that has, and again, there's ways around this, obviously, I, I'm not making an excuse for them, but I wonder if that has kind of ossified their flexibility in terms of like bringing new voices in, considering they are all co-owners of Critical Role Productions. Um, it's not Matthew Mercer at the top, kind of picking and choosing. Yeah, that is super interesting, but also a pretty common story for let's just say like YouTubers who get big. I also think about just the fact that like with this friendship that you get to see in 300 plus episodes, there is also a bit of a fandom. Mm -hmm. Might use the P word, parasocial relationship. Oh, yeah. And so I have to kind of assume that there must be drama in said fandom because, you know, Mercer, he himself as a figure, he's got the fandom, he's got the fan cam, which by the way, I actually do understand. And... The subreddit for Critical Role apparently has like almost 400,000 members, which means that we kind of have to ask you, like, what is the Critical Role drama? Is there any tea? What are the girls like fighting about? Yeah, so the, I think the thing that's so interesting about so much of like all Internet drama is it's often fascinating by like how mundane it is. The number one drama that Matthew Mercer faces is people that really hate his dungeon mastering style that really that oh. don't like how kind of actorial it is. There's a strong like contingency of people that are uh, anti-Matthew Mercer from that degree. And that can spill out some interesting ways. Monster Heart, the teen romance uh, RPG. He started a spinoff of Critical Role where they were playing that game and he got a couple of the rules wrong or maybe didn't have the approach that some of the fans, some of the fans of that game had. And of course that sparked a, a big inter- uh, tabletop RPG fandom of, of Monster Heart fans really hating on this Dungeons & Dragons guy coming over to their territory and, and playing his game and getting oh, it wrong. Yeah. But the thing about this world is, you know, when you're playing your RPG, that's a pretty personal thing for you. It's it's something you are pretty passionate about. It's you and your friends, and that's your kind of private little sanctum that you, that you hang out in. And I don't know, anyone getting super famous in that realm... I think is going to be perceived as like an interloper, especially when you're they're making money off of it. And especially when by the nature of critical roles productions are always going to be trying to expand and come up with new ideas and new settings and new kind of avenues for this brand. Uh, it's a delicate, it, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, Candace. It's a, it's a, it's a delicate, uh, it's, a, it's a balancing act, right? Is you're saying, Hey, come, come with me, participate in this friendship, but also at the same time, we're, running a business here and I can it's easier to bring emotional stakes into a business like that for for viewerships that parasocial relationship when the product at the end of the day is come hang out with me and all my friends as we play Dungeons and Dragons that makes a lot of sense and it makes me wonder how do hardcore D&D &D fans feel about the success of Critical Role? Like people who were very into Dungeons mm. and Dragons mm -hmm. beforehand, because when something niche like this blows up, there's usually some grumbling in the community about it. And right. it causes an influx of new people. The appeal of monetization usually tends to do some weird things to hobby communities like... I'm wondering if there's some resentment of Critical Role or Matthew Mercer at all. 
Oh, the, the biggest Dungeon Dragons fan I know like, hates his guts. But if not hate, hate hate is strong. Like he doesn't like he doesn't think he's like a bad person or anything, but like just really just hates the way he runs his game. And it's like what you said, that 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 insulation, whenever I've asked him to explain it, he's never like articulated in a way that feels like especially coherent. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> kind of like a couple of bugaboos that have have piled up into and gotten weird, you know? Um but that's how, like you said, that's how it tends to go in like hobby communities, right? It's like if anyone gets a lot of success, there's just an uneasiness about it. There's always going to be some level of uneasiness that I think can only really be felt and understood by people who have really put in the hours and is sort of hard to understand for people that are a little bit more on the outside. And it might really just come down to uh, maybe a feeling that, uh, if in another world, maybe I should be the famous dungeon master. I don't know. I was going to say that. I actually wonder if maybe I'm just going to say it. I wonder if they're just jealous because yeah. and I can understand how they get there, because like if you are watching someone, Matthew Mercer, on Critical Role, play a game that you know extremely well, a game that you've played for as long as him and you even like look like him and you relate to him. There is a part of you that goes, well, why can't I do that? So then you do it. You like try to start a YouTube channel. You're not getting the views. You're not getting the ad spawn, all the stuff. And then you just kind of turn that like self-reflecting into like hatred of this guy. But I kind of right. unfortunately think it would be naive of Matthew Mercer to not think that this community could talk about him that way because he knows what it's like. And so yeah, I think yeah, it, co yeah. it comes with the course, right? Yeah, he's he's got plenty of reps in this that 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 sort of stuff at this point. I, I one other thing that's important to mention though is that like running a D and D game or game mastering or dungeon mastering, whatever you want to call it, is like like one of the biggest subreddits in this community. It's just called like DM Tips, and it's just people like sharing best practices of how to run a game well. It, you can't really write like a definitive set of rules. You can come up with a, a pretty solid set of rules, but it, it's there's an eye of beholder stuff to how to run a good Dungeons Dragons game that goes beyond like gameplay, right? It, it's about like uh, social engineering. It's about improv. It's about like coming up with good ideas. It's about making sure your players feel like they're engaged in the story. It, it, as someone that's done this a couple of times, I wouldn't say when I'm running my Lord of the Rings game, I feel like I'm playing. It, it feels a little bit more like, like work or like uh Moderating, I don't know, like, maybe? Yeah, moderating. Managing being, a little bit. Yeah, being a referee, yeah. performance art, yeah. like all that stuff kind of combined. It's a skill set, you know? And it's like how every personal trainer at the gym will tell you a different thing about how to maximize your, your bench press or whatever. That is also a bit of an art and a science, right? And the, the, the same kind of thing applies to uh, the dungeon mastering, oddly enough. Luke, is there anything that you came across in your reporting that did not make its way into the piece? Oh, man, there was a bunch of stuff. We talked for a long time. I, I guess one thing I think is interesting, at least it is to me, is like those guys are like in like the Dungeon Dragons universe now, like Matthew Mercer and like his characters are. Like They've like fully crossed the Rubicon in the sense that they're, they're not only part of they're not only the most famous Dungeon Dragons players out there. They are now like sort of part of the Dungeon Dragons canon in a way that I don't think has much precedent for any other like lane of entertainment I can think of. It's 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 a really strange, it's a really strange way to be famous. I guess is the, my, the thing I kept coming back to. Yeah, being the ultimate fan of something turning you into being a part of the thing feels almost like a dream for I know, <laughs> any <yeah>. nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dream, but it's also like 
It seems scary. It's, like, it's disorienting or something. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know. It's just bizarre. I had the best time. I really am considering going out and starting a campaign. But thank you so much, Luke, for your time. This was so fun. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. I really appreciate it. Okay, that's the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so definitely subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Leave a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. And tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, is there an ICYMI Monster Hearts group? And you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sarah Spragley-Ritz, Candice Slim, and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online. Or on the planet of the base.